Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not leave us alone. You are a God who speaks. You reveal yourself to us, uh, and you do that most perfectly through your word. But Lord, we are blind, we are hard of hearing, and we have hearts that are far from you and wayward. And so we pray that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and work in us now as we look to your word. Lord, we need you. I need you, Lord. Help me and help us to come into contact with your word and not go away unchanged. Lord, we want you to deal with us today. We want to be moved and affected by your word. And so we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever felt like you are drowning in your sin? When we rightly understand and capture a glimpse of our sin, or when we are afflicted with a particular struggle with sin in our lives, or when we've perhaps given way to presumptuous sin, for a time and then come to repentance, we can feel like we are drowning in our sin. We can feel that our sins are over our head. Like Jonah, perhaps, as he's cast overboard into the raging waves of the sea, our sins seek to have control over us. They seem to dominate our lives. The guilt of our sin is crashing in over our heads. Perhaps we try and swim against the waves, but we find that we have no strength in ourselves. We keep falling, we keep sinning, our guilt, we find no freedom from our guilt, we can't keep our head above the water. And at times it's as if we, like Jonah, sink beneath the water. And as we are sinking, we give in to our guilt, we can't save ourselves as perhaps we'd hoped and we realize that we're in a hopeless situation. We maybe stop struggling and descend to the depths of despair. Sometimes our sin feels like that. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in that situation? Perhaps you're in that situation now. And I actually think that's a good situation to be in. If you realize that you are sinking beneath your sins, it's a good thing. But what can you do if you are sinking under the guilt and power of sin? Where can we turn? What does God's word say? Does it offer any comfort, any hope to us? Well, Psalm 130 is a guide for us in those times. You can see the psalmist is in this exact position. He is in the depths, he says in verse 1. Now, you could be in the depths for a bunch of different reasons. You could just be struggling in in life and trials of life in general that might not be related to sin. But we know from the psalm that, that, that the psalmist is struggling under sin. He says so. He cries out to the Lord for mercy. He pleads in verse 3 and 4 that God would not remember his sin. And in verse 7, he talks of redemption and forgiveness from sins. 
So from this psalm, as we look at it, I hope we will learn what the Christian is to do and even what the non-Christian is to do. If you have not yet come to believe in Jesus Christ, when they are in the depths because of the guilt and struggle of sin. The first thing we see in our psalm is that the psalmist knows where to turn. The psalmist is in the pits. He feels completely out of depth. And what does he do? Well, he turns to the Lord. And this cry to the Lord is not short. It's not a lackluster, apathetic call. The psalmist is desperate. He is passionate, he's repetitive, and he is begging. Look at verse 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Three times he cries out, and each time it's more and more desperate. You know, this is not a natural response for us. When we are struggling with sin, we tend to turn to other things to solve our problem. We tend to try and get out of it ourselves. But perhaps the most significant danger these days is that we try to distract ourselves from the problem. We see guilt, we see difficulty with sin as an issue in our lives, and so we try to distract ourselves from that issue. And our current culture is more than happy to provide us with many opportunities to do just that. Our phones, social media, Netflix, video games, never-ending social commitments, parties, all of these things can be used to numb us to the pain of sin rather than letting the pain and the desperate nature that we have because of our sin, drive us to cry out earnestly to God. In fact, many of these things that surround us are specifically designed to keep you from thinking and to keep you distracted, to keep you from sensing the awful weight of sin in your life. Have you ever wondered why Netflix autoplays the next video? Or why Facebook puts a bunch of funny videos all through your feed? Our world is busy giving us ways to be distracted from dealing with the difficulties of sin and we are usually more than happy to numb our pain and distract our conscience with these things rather than sit in the depths like the psalmist did and cry out to God until He gives us freedom. So where do you turn when you are under conviction of sin? Where do you turn when you are desperately under the weight of guilt? Where do you turn when you are struggling with a sin in your life that you just can't get free of? Alcohol, movies, food, sleep, work, friends. Well, I appeal to you, don't. When you are under the conviction of sin, turn to the Lord and cry out to Him desperately, repeatedly and do not stop until he answers your prayer only God can rescue us from the pain and weight of sin the second thing we see in our psalm is 
that we must realize that our situation is hopeless. The reason we must turn to God and not just distract ourselves is that dealing with sin is not something we can take lightly. Sometimes a, a child grazes their knee, they fall over and graze their knee, and they come to their parent crying because they've hurt themselves. And the parent says, oh, it's all right, here's a lolly. You know, and they, just, they distract them because they can see their knee is not that big a deal. There's not even blood there, it's just a tiny little graze. The kid's just upset, he needs a distraction, so he's not thinking about the pain, and off he goes and he's fine. But what would you think if you saw a child with a broken arm come to their parent? And the parent says, don't worry, here's a lollipop. Distracting the child in that situation is wrong. It's bad. Don't do it. Because why? There's a big problem there. That child needs the problem addressed. And that's going to mean more pain and more trouble. You're going to have to take them to a hospital. You're going to have to set the bone. It's going to be painful for the child. They're going to have to cast, which is irritating over time. But addressing the issue is what needs to be done because it's a serious issue. And that's exactly the sort of... Well, it's actually much worse than that. But it's the sort of situation we're in with our sin. You don't want to distract yourself from your sin because you have a serious problem. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? If you are feeling in the pits because of conviction of sin or because you are struggling with repeated sin in your life, then you are starting to see things right. You're starting to see things as they actually are. We should all be feeling this way almost all the time. We should all be swamped with the size of the problem of sin in our lives. Our sins keep racking up an unaccountable debt. If God counted and kept a store of, the, the word there is the idea of keeping, you know, storing them up. If he kept account of all of our sins, what number would he be up to? What if you just thought about today? What are we? Not even 11 o'clock yet, all right? So you might have been up for five hours, maybe, if you got up early. How many sins have you committed so far today that God is aware of? We sang in the, one of the hymns earlier that he sees them all. We don't even see as many as he sees. But that envious thought you had, that selfish motive to that good thing that you ended up doing, that's sin. That cruel sentence you spoke, designed to cut down and hurt, that hateful anger that bubbled up momentarily inside of you. How many sins? How many in the last week? How many in the last month or the last year? When we stop and consider just the sheer volume of our sins. And think if you're a, a Christian. Think of those areas of your life that 
that you just can't seem to overcome sin in. For me, one of those is pride. I just, almost constantly, these little prideful thoughts come into my mind. It's horrendous. And again, our world has advice for you. If you are crushed by your failures and the sheer weight and size of your sin, the world wants to tell you, don't worry, just believe in yourself. You're perfect the way you are. Or maybe they say, don't compare yourself to others. Don't worry, nobody's perfect, so imperfection's okay. The psalmist knows far better. Oh Lord, if you, could, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? The reality is that my sins are like scarlet, as Isaiah says. The reality is that I am covered with filth. Zechariah compares it to human sewage covering me. The reality is that I'm not just struggling a little, a little falling every now and then. The reality is that by nature we are dead. Totally corrupt. We are guilty. And that's why we need to cry out to God when we find ourselves swamped by our sin because the situation is really bad. And we must see that it's bad. Even if you have just a small little conviction of sin in your life. If you're not a Christian today and you, you can see just a small area in your life where you fail before God. Don't run away from that thought. Hold that thought. Let it sink in. Consider just how weighty it is to fall in just one area before a perfect and holy creator God to whom we owe perfect allegiance. And let it sink in. Consider how it's not just one area that you fall in, but there are many. Consider how your heart flees far from giving God the worship and honor that he is due. Ask God so that you might feel the weight of the situation that you are in. Because then you will be seeing the world a little bit clearer. Just a little bit. And then acknowledge that to God. That's what the psalmist does. Lord, if you were to count iniquities, I would not stand. I am guilty before you. Now, if the psalmist left us here, we would be at a complete loss, crying out to God, knowing we are in a hopeless situation. And that would be it. But we aren't left there. Look at verse 4. The psalmist teaches us to look to God's redemption, to look to God's promises and his character. Look at verse 4 with me. But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Surely this is one of the most glorious lines in the scriptures. 
after accepting the reality of our position before God, after seeing how we are so out of our depth, the psalmist directs us to the one truth that can calm our troubled soul. There is forgiveness with God. And we see further down in verse 7 and 8 that this forgiveness is not limited. This forgiveness is not small. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from some of their sins, not at all, from all of their sins. The forgiveness found in the Lord is abundant. The forgiveness found in the Lord is full. It is unfailing. Our sins, we sang, are many. We are far out of our depth, but the mercy of God is more. How can this be? We have seen how deep our sinfulness goes. And sometimes if you sense the weight of your guilt, you might think, how could God possibly redeem me? I can see how he could redeem that guy over there. He seems much better than I am. But how could God redeem me? Well, the answer is clear when we look to Jesus Christ. There is overflowing and abundant redemption in God because he has provided a full and comprehensive salvation through Jesus. Yes, your debts are huge, but he has provided the blood of his son as payment. Yes, you are deserving of eternal torment. But the Father poured his wrath out on his beloved, eternal, infinite Son to pay the penalty you deserve. You keep sinning and you feel that that provokes the Father to fresh wrath and anger at your sin. How could he love someone who knows the love of Jesus and yet continually turns their back on him and walks willingly down the paths of sin and rejection of God? Well, the son not only died and rose again, but he stands even now before the father, interceding for his own, pleading before the father, showing him the wounds. God, father, I have paid for their sin, even that one, and that one, and that one. You aren't sure if God could accept you, but He has already, if you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He has already brought you into His family as, your, as His adopted son. And the salvation we find in God is even more comprehensive than just forgiveness. The word the psalmist uses in verse 7 and 8 is redeem. With him is full redemption. 
This carries with it the idea of ownership. You redeem a slave by buying him from his current owner. He was once owned by someone else and you pay a price for him and now he's owned by you. This is what happens when we come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Not only does he pay our debt, but he releases us from being owned by sin. And he becomes our master and our owner instead. That means that all those who are purchased by Christ are free from the power of sin. You are not under that mastery anymore. We tend to forget just how complete and comprehensive and expensive and expansive the salvation of Jesus is. And particularly when we're under the pressing guilt and the uh, overwhelming power of sin in our lives, we need to consider the price that he paid. We need to consider the incessant intercession that he has We need to meditate on the fullness of the salvation we find in Jesus. And this salvation is available freely to all who repent and believe. Perhaps you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, you are deep in sin. You have no hope in yourselves. Why wouldn't you turn? Why wouldn't you turn from your sin, which will keep pulling you under? Why wouldn't you be free? Come to Jesus Christ. Cry out to God. And you will find, as the psalmist did, that there is forgiveness with God. In terms of our our struggle with sin and with guilt, looking at the forgiveness that he offers is the next stop. However, in the Christian life, and even in the experience of those who are not yet saved, there's a difference between the reality of what God has done and our experience of it. The psalmist, for instance, knows that he will find forgiveness in God. He knows that God is a merciful God, a forgiving God, who clears debts. But it seems to me that he doesn't feel that way. He doesn't sense that. He doesn't experience the freedom of forgiveness yet. And this is true for Christians as well. I think the the psalmist was a Christian when he wrote this. And he's feeling the weight of his sin in his Christian walk. And he knows that God is a forgiving God and a merciful God, but he doesn't feel the freedom from it yet. And so what does he do? You know, we... We we love to think that If we come to God and cry out to Him, He should give us immediate relief. We want to experience the the joy of our salvation. We want to experience the freedom 
We know Christ has won for us. The beauty of the adoption we've received. We want to receive immediate freedom from the power of sin that, it might, that we might be done with that particular sin in our life. No one enjoys being in the depths. But in Psalm 130, we see that God doesn't always deliver us immediately. Instead, look at verse 5 and 6. We are called to wait on the Lord. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. This is a man who wants deliverance. Just as someone sitting in the dark wants to see the light come over the hills so they don't have to fear an an invasion in the dark or robbers and burglars that they might be watching for. The light brings freedom and deliverance and safety and security and joy and happiness. But God often wants us to wait on him. Consider Saul's conversion experience we read in Acts 9. Saul was confronted with his sin in verse 5. Saul's out there persecuting the church and Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the turmoil in his life that this would have produced? All of a sudden, Saul realizes that where he thought that he was serving God by destroying this evil sect of who believed in this risen Jesus, he now realizes, no, I've been rejecting God. And there is a risen King Jesus who I will answer to, and, I, and he's standing right in front of me. This would have been a great overhaul in his life and for three days he sat without eating without seeing anything without any freedom all he knew was that Jesus was alive and that he had been persecuting him And it was only after three days of waiting that the Lord sent Ananias to open Saul's eyes and the Holy Spirit to open his heart. Ananias, laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jonah had a similar situation, of course. He had three days of despair as he sank in the belly of the great fish before the Lord had the fish vomit him out onto dry land. There's example after example in the scriptures and through church history. This is the case with many Christians throughout the ages. God often has us wait for him. This is what happened even with Jesus himself. We often forget that Jesus was in the grave for a time. Jesus experienced great suffering, was crucified, died, and it's in all the creeds, he was buried. This is how God works. He works this way in salvation, which we saw with Paul, which I saw in my own experience. There was a great period of being in the depths for several months for me. 
But God also works this way in sanctification. He works this way in the lives of Christians. He will often reveal a sin to us. Everyone else could see it, but we couldn't. He will reveal it to us. And then he will have us struggle under its weight for days, weeks, months, maybe even years before he gives us some sense of freedom from its power. God is the God of death, burial, and resurrection. And we will find that that is our experience as well. That is why we must wait for the Lord. Now, why does he do this? Is he just vindictive? Does he love to see us suffer under the weight of sin? Is it some form of punishment? Well, you got yourself into this mess. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be racing to get, out of you, get you out of it just yet. Let's, uh, let's see you feel the weight of it for a bit. Is that how God's looking at us? No, I think God does this for our own good and for his glory. I think there's three things, three good things that come out of the times of waiting on the Lord for deliverance from sin and guilt. The first is that it brings us to depend more on God. One of the recurring principles of the Christian life is that of depending on God. We naturally want to be self-sufficient. We think we can do it all ourselves, but God graciously works in our lives to teach us not to depend on ourselves, but to depend on Him. He teaches us that we are not self-sufficient, we are not independent, we are dependent on Him. This period of time in the depths is one way that He teaches us that. As we struggle in the pit of sin, we learn that we desperately need God, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot forgive ourselves. We need God all the time. But we are so stubborn and slow to learn it that he often needs to bring us to our wit's end. He needs to show us at times a little taste of what it's like without him. He needs to show us something of our wretchedness, something of our hopelessness, the darkness of our own soul. And only then, after we learn to despair of ourselves and to wait on the Lord, only then do we genuinely depend on God. Another reason that God may leave us to wait on Him for a time before working out the reality or the experience of our forgiveness is that the struggle with guilt and with sin helps us to hate sin more. We can easily forget how foul sewerage smells, but someone who's had to sit in a septic tank for days probably has a better sense of it than we do. By going through the depths of struggling, sin, struggling with sin and guilt and waiting on the Lord for a time before He delivers us, we come to have a new appreciation of the foulness of our sin and the horror of our guilt. We can be so easily tempted to think of sin as a light thing, something small, something that doesn't really cost that much and so it's a gracious and good thing when God gives us a great sense of the weight of it and has us struggle with it for a time and so we are to wait on the Lord 
And as we wait, we will hunger after his deliverance, his forgiveness, and his holiness in our life. And the third reason that God may have us wait is found in our passage. It's so that we learn to live by faith. In verse 5, the psalmist says, my so- I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. When we're in the pits of despair, when we're calling out to God from the depths, our felt experience of all God's promises is not there. This is exactly what it is to live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I can't see God's forgiveness in my life right now. I'm not sensing it. I'm not feeling it. But God says that all who come to him, all who trust in him will be saved. And my job is to live by faith in that promise. I'm struggling under some sin in my life as a Christian And I can't seem to be free from it. I can't find my own way out. It seems to have mastery over me. I seem to be its slave. But I must look to the scriptures and see God say, for instance, in Romans 12, that I am a living sacrifice to God. Or Romans 6, that I've died to sin. And I must live by faith, even though sin seems to have such pressure and such mastery over me. I must walk according to God's word, not according to my own feelings, not according to my own experience. This is why we come to church. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we go to Bible studies, because the experience of our lives is not felt In line with reality. The reality is if you're a Christian, you are free from sin. The reality is that if you're trusting in Jesus, you are counted as perfectly pure and righteous before God. You might not feel that way. But we must live by faith in the word of God. We must hope in the word of God. And we must wait on the Lord, trusting in his word, waiting for him to work it out as a felt experience in our lives, and at times he does. As we depend on him and as we come to him, he does free us. He does show us the glories of the gospel as experiences in our life. What I want you to take away is that whatever your struggle with sin There is truth, there is rock-solid, dependable, life-changing truth in the Bible that you are to depend on, even if you are in a period of waiting on the Lord. God wants us to live by faith in His Word. And this really is the whole of the Christian life. We come to Jesus out of the pits of despair and guilt of our sin we cry out to him and we wait on him trusting in his holy word that he would deliver us and we continue through this life stumbling and falling under the power of sin in our life and the weight of remaining sin crying out to God acknowledging our situation before him 
looking to the forgiveness found in him, looking and waiting and depending on him. And one day, one day we will experience in full all the truth, all the goodness, all the beauty and richness of the gospel, of freedom from sin, of righteousness before God, of acceptance by him. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of our situation, to the hopelessness we face by ourselves when it comes to our sin. Lord, so often we do not see our sin as we ought to. We do not sense our guilt before you. We are blind and we distract ourselves and hide from the truth. Lord, open our eyes, we pray. But do not let us despair. No, Lord, let us go to your word. Let us cry out to you. Let us wait upon you and hope in the salvation that you have spoken to us and promised to us in your word. May we live by faith in Jesus Christ and in your promises and in the grand and glorious future that you have secured for all those who hope in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.